Yeah, this is my life. I'm done trying to convince people I'm real. Welcome to the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast presented by the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. This is the podcast that takes an inside look into the training of eight of America's best marathoners as they prepare for the Olympic Marathon Trials in Atlanta in February 2020. And this is an emergency podcast, one of the rare ones that we're going to have on this stream and on this feed, but there's a very good reason. Yesterday, the USATF announced new Olympic standards for the Olympic Trials Marathon, and I could not wait to break this down with three special guests. They are Mario Fraioli, Ben Rosario, and Parker Stinson. Mario Fraioli has been on the running scene for a long time. He's one of the top running writers around. Uh, he also does the Morning Shakeout newsletter in the Morning Shakeout podcast. He's written for numerous running websites and publications as well. Ben Rosario is the coach of the Hoka NAZ Elite, one of the best running clubs in America, and the coach of Kellen Taylor, who's a member of this podcast. And Parker Stinson, you may recall, was our first guest, episode one. And I couldn't wait to hear his reaction as well. So, Let's dive into it with Mario, Parker, and Ben. Mario, thank you for coming on the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. Well, we got big news. We had to do an emergency podcast as it relates <laughs> to the Olympic Trials Marathon. Not, I didn't think I was going to be doing one of those in July. I'm not going to be honest. Well, well, you are being honest. I mean, um, I, should, I should say I, should, I am being honest. I'm so frazzled. I'm so excited. I'm, I'm, I'm misspeaking. <laughs> early on in the show. Yeah, I mean, for a, an event that's happening at the end of February 2020, you wouldn't expect there to be any significant news here in late July. But here we are. I feel like we're on a Bill Simmons episode of the Ringer podcast with this like emergency, <laughs> emergency pod type thing. First one I've ever done. So thanks for calling me in. Oh, my pleasure. All right. So we, we talked a little bit offline here. What we're going to do is we're actually going to read the USATF release, and after each little mini paragraph here, we'll dissect what we're reading because there's a lot of meat on the bone and there's a lot of context that they allude to in this release that isn't exactly flushed out, but I think we can do our best to flush it out here. So let's just start with the headline. Let's give it a go. U.S. Olympic team trials marathon, both men and women granted gold label status. USATF is pleased to announce that the International Association of Athletics Fe uh, Federations, the IAAF, granted its request to extend the conditions for granting a gold label for the 2020 Olympic Trials Marathon men's and women's qualification on an exceptional basis. So, with that being said, I think the first thing I want to announce want people to understand if they didn't already know is that this was the IAAF's decision. This is not USATF or USOC because I did get that question quite a bit over the last 24 hours. Correct. Um, it is the IAAF's decision. That said, it was USATF's request to the IAAF that they consider granting gold label status to next year's Olympic trials. So USATF was certainly the initiator. Um, if they had not initiated it, I can guarantee you that the IAAF would not have 
just pulled a fast one and said, hey, you know what? We think it's a good idea to grant gold label status to the U.S. Olympic trials. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. And this is in response to their announcement in March, which basically said that someone had to have the world Olympics, the, the Olympic standard in order to compete in the Olympics, in the marathon, no matter how well they did in their country's trials. Correct. So with that being said, and I want to emphasize this point that you just made, granted its request to extend conditions of the gold label. So this is the, the, this is the request part. So this is something that came out after March. I think a lot of people were wondering what was going to be USATF's response to the IAAF announcement, or I should say, you know, regarding the Tokyo Olympics. How early on in the process were you made aware of that they would be making a formal request regarding some aspect of a change to the initial um, the initial presentation? I mean, there were rumblings about it toward the end of last year, but they were just that. There were rumblings. There were no official announcements from anyone who swings any weight. And then in March of this year, it got dropped on everyone that the Olympic qualification standards for athletics, which includes track and field and the marathon and also race walking, were going to change. And the big reason for that is that athletics is the highest participatory sport in the Olympics. And there were just too many athletes in Rio, so they needed to reduce field sizes. And the marathon's the easiest place to cut numbers because it is the biggest event from a participatory standpoint. I mean, I think there were 175 to 85 in each of the men's and in, in the in both the men's and women's races uh, in each race uh, in Rio 2016. And they were looking to reduce that by about half. So the way that they decided to do that was to tighten up the standards. So they made the time standards, which were 215, 219 for men, 237, 245 for women as the A and B, down to 211.30 as one standard for men, and 229.30, one standard for women. So obviously a lot more challenging for people to hit that mark. Um, the second major change they made was that you could qualify by place if you finish top five at an IAAF gold label race. There are numerous ones around the world. I can't name them all off the top of my head. Or you finish top 10 at a marathon major, which is, you know, Boston, New York, Chicago, Berlin, Tokyo. Uh, did I say London in there? But there's six of them. Um, you can finish top 10 in one of those races. And, you know, regardless of what time you ran, if you finished in the, in the top 10 of one of those races, you would be qualified for the Olympics. Now, what's problematic about this is the timing of it. So, I mean, you make this announcement in March of 2000. 19. The Olympics are August 2020. For the marathon, this is a bigger deal than on the track because marathoners can really only race two high-level marathons a year. And the window, the new window that they put on this was January, I believe it was January 1st, 2019 to like May 2020. So in that amount of time, realistically, someone who is going to compete in August 2020 at the Olympic Games in Tokyo, they're going to race maybe twice before the Olympics. And further complicating this issue is every country's selection process is a bit different. Here in the United States, we have a trials. It's typically been top three 
uh, in the trials race and you are on the Olympic team, other countries are a bit more subjective. They will just pick their, you know, their top athletes. Um, some countries will decide to have a trials if it's necessary, depending on the depth that year. So it was just a complete mess of changes that took place earlier this year. I think I remember exactly there, right. but I think that, I think that covers us. Yeah, for sure. And that's exactly right, because so many countries do it different ways. What they're saying is we don't care how you do it, but they have to have this standard if they want to compete. And exactly. I think the other part is, is just the wording around granted to extend the conditions for granting. So basically using the word granting twice in one sense, mm -hmm. granted its request to extend the conditions for granting a gold label for the Olymp for the 2020 Olympic trial. So it's not actually a gold label race but we're going to give it the conditions of a gold label race. And this is the biggest part here for the men's and women's qualifications. So this was a big thing um, that I know Jonathan Galt touched on it on Let's Run on July 8th in his comprehensive article kind of alluding to what could happen uh, regarding, you know, this announcement or, you know, some of the potentials for, the, for an announcement like this. And one of the big things was that the women's, marath the women's marathon, the Olympic trials, if it was simply a normal marathon, would qualify for gold label status because they had more than seven women who were gold label status athletes. Whereas the men's right. side fell fall way short of that. They actually only had one um, with as with Galen Rupp being the one person, Scott Fobble and Jared Ward were just outside of it. But even then, that's only half the number they would need. And that that was, you know, a potential issue was, is it going to be segmented here on gender lines regarding this process and how that might play out uh, regarding not only public consumption, but people trying to grab, you know, wrap their arms around what it takes to qualify for the Olympics and the marathon. Can, can you imagine that if the U.S. Olympic trials marathon for women was a gold label event, thus top three go to the Olympics, no questions asked, and the men's race wasn't? Can you imagine the uproar if that, if that were to happen? That would be, I'll tell you what, that's a great like sliding door, you know, in history, if that <laughs> if that were to happen. There would be so many potential long-term and short-term consequences of something like that. Some would be fascinating, some would probably be um not as appetizing, <laughs> but <laughs> in terms of you know, public reactions, but it certainly would be an interesting moment, it would certainly validate what the women were doing in terms of their production in recent years. Right. Interesting to consider it, but Thankfully, for a number of reasons, that is not happening. Yeah, and I just want to make a point there that some people might think that's a throwaway sentence, the men's and women's qualification. It was not. That was not preordained by any sense of the imagination. Okay, so second paragraph. The announcement of the, of the Tokyo 2020 qualification system in March presented challenges to the USATF and its partners as planning for marathon trials had begun well before the changes to the qualification system were announced. USATF has been proactive in attempts to find a solution and is pleased with the resolution. First of all, no kidding there, please. This was like the best case scenario. <laughs> yeah, it, it really was the best case scenario for everyone. No doubt about it. And I think the other part here that, you know, I think USATF got a little bit of a, had a little bit of a black eye and some of it was, you know, self-imposed was in March when their communications office talked to Let's Run and basically said, we're going top three. We're not going to do a selection process. That's just how we do it. And then it was kind of like, oh, no, like you're not going to like 
you know, figure out the most equitable way of doing this is not the best idea. So I think it's important that they try to get it out there as quickly as possible, even in this release, that they were trying to be as proactive as they could be to change, um, you know, to, to change the qualification system. Yeah. And if you think about it, going back even further, the planning for an event like the Olympic Trials Marathon, which we've had in this country for a long time now, um, it happens shortly after the last Olympic Trials was over because this is the system, you know, that we've been in and cities have to bid, you know, on the event itself and then they have to grant that. And then there's a lot of planning that that goes into it locally by the organizing committee and then, you know, USATF as well. So a lot of these wheels have been in motion for several years. And back to what I was saying earlier, to sort of pull the rug out from under all of it with you know, a year and a half until the Olympic Games and less than a year until this event is, you know, is problematic. Um, you know, it changes, uh, it changes a lot of things and it affects a lot of different people. All right. So next paragraph. In the communique to the Federation, the IAAF noted that the athlete preparation, pre-existing commercial commitments and TV broadcast agreements were key factors in this in this decision. Now, this is the most like this is the paragraph <laughs> that I love the most because it's just like it comes across as a throwaway line, and it is not. There's a lot here. So the first part is noted that the athlete preparation that that was a part of that. I think this alludes to, and I could be wrong, the fact that for a number of people, especially on the men's side, a lot of them would be trying to get the Olympic standard in the fall. And then also run their best in February, which isn't necessarily ideal. Um, plenty of people were going to do it anyway, but isn't necessarily ideal, especially when you only had, you know, a few people who'd already received the Olympic standard or earned, earned the mm. Olympic standard. Not so much on the women's side, because the top 10, almost all of them have it besides Shaleen and Amy. However, if they're top three, they almost certainly will get it in Atlanta. But I think that's, I think that's what they're alluding to there in that first part. Yeah, I think what that alludes to is what I touched on earlier is that the Olympic trials for U.S. marathoners has been on their schedules since it was announced. Anyone who <laughs> remotely thought that they had a chance of making a push for the Olympic team in 2020 has had that date circled on their calendar as soon as they announce it. And they've worked everything backward from there over the last several years. So I'm glad that the IAAF recognized that they're screwing with people's schedules. But again, the timing of all this. So they made this announcement in March. And in March, what happens? Everyone hits the panic button. It's like, what am I going to do in the fall? I wasn't planning on racing a marathon. I was going to get one out of the way here in the spring, take a little break, you know, train through the fall, begin my cycle so I could be um, as prepared as possible for end of February. And then all of a sudden, because no one had the standard, everyone had to make other arrangements. So, I mean, some of those folks got got lucky and got out of the way, like Scott Fobble, Jared Ward. They both finished top 10 at Boston. They're good. Um, but I talked to Tyler McCandless on my podcast last week. And Tyler, you know, had the ninth, has the ninth fastest time amongst men here in the U.S., 212.28, which was under the old Olympic A standard. He raced the LA Marathon this past spring, which he had planned for a while, and told me that was going to be my 
last race before the 2020 trials, but then they changed. I listened to the, that podcast. I listened to that podcast right before I started recording this and I heard it and I cringed. I was like, oh my God, it's like, this is the, the perfect yeah. example of why they need to announce this earlier. Exactly. So then he's like, well, then we decided that I needed to run a fall marathon because I want to have the standard when I'm on the starting line at Atlanta. So, you know, that I don't have to worry about trying to run two eleven thirty there or whatever it may be because it's a hard course. And then, then, you know, to get the announcement yesterday, it's like, hey, guess what? You know, um, actually, you just have to finish top three at trials. You really don't have to run a fall marathon if you don't want to. That puts him in quite a predicament because guys like him and females, too, have already signed a contract. You know, they've negotiated appearance fees. Their coaches have rearranged their training to account for the fact that now they're going to race a fall marathon, take a break, and then, you know, build up and have a cycle, you know, before the Olympic trials in February. So it's going to be really interesting now to see how many of those athletes stick with their fall commitments. I imagine some, if not many of them, will for various reasons, but I wouldn't be surprised to see others pull out and say, you know what, I'm not racing a marathon until trials in February. I'm I'm going to be asking that question to Parker Stinson in about an hour. He's going to be the the third part of this 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 podcast, and I, I couldn't wait to talk to him for that exact same reason that you're talking to Tyler. I can't about wait it. to hear. Yeah, I can't wait to hear his perspective on that. And I think you're talking to Ben Rosario too as part of this series, so it'll be interesting to get the coaching take on it from yeah, his exactly. Angle, so exactly. So I actually talked to him this this afternoon, and he was funny. He's like, "Yeah, we're, I was in the unique position that you know Stephanie wanted to run a fall one anyway." And he goes, but, but, and then, and Scott Fobble didn't want to run one and he got his out of the way. He goes, it would have been interesting if Fobble didn't get it at Boston, how, how things could have changed and how we'd be stuck in that situation. Yeah. It's a, yeah. it's a fascinating little predicament. All right. So I want to touch on the second half of this one sentence because I feel like this could be There's a, a whole lot page of text. This could be a whole page of text instead of half of a sentence. So it says, you know, as we mentioned, no to the athlete preparation and then, the pre-existing commercial commitments and TV broadcast arrangement, arrangements were key factors in the decision as well. Okay, so the pre-existing commercial commitments and TV broadcasting arrangements. So does this all have to do with the financial aspect of not only the Olympic trials, but just the Olympics themselves? Yeah, I think this is the most fascinating excerpt of the press release. and. They were intentionally nonspecific about who or what these commercial commitments and TV broadcast arrangements were. But NBC Sports is the official media partner of the Olympics. The way things work with broadcast here, it's like road to the Olympics. That's how they market their broadcast of any of the Olympic trials. And had the marathon trials been in a position where potentially someone could finish in the top three, but they don't have a standard and technically aren't going to the Olympic games. That's a really challenging story to tell and try to explain to, a, you know, I would say widespread, maybe worldwide, you know, audience. So I think, you know, again, back to a lot of these pieces are put in place, you know, years ahead of time, but, you know, the trials are going to be broadcast on TV. Uh, it is, you know, the Olympics are and Olympic trials are kind of the one time every four years that people really pay attention to running in this country when it's not the New York City Marathon or Boston Marathon, if there's something that's happened there. So I think that is what they mean by these, you know, TV 
broadcast arrangements and pre-existing commercial commitments because there's a lot of money behind that. Um, and if it's, you know, if if it's not returning value to, you know, those commercial partners because it's a confusing narrative to tell, nobody wins. That's exactly right. And I think this is another way of saying you could parse it even further is that they wanted to make sure that people were watching the men's race because the women's race is going to, is you know, the, the top 10, like we mentioned earlier, the top 10 female marathoners in the country almost all have the Olympic standard already. Like that, that race right. was going to take care of itself. It was, we need to make sure that there are American men in the field. We can't have, what was it, 2004? Um, Rod DeHaven was the Rod only DeHaven. American male yeah. marathoner who went to yeah, the Yeah, so it was like. Exactly. We can't have a Rod DeHaven situation. Uh, no, 2000, 2000, not 2000. 2000. It was 2000. Okay. And yeah. then, you know, then, then we all know about how, how Meb, you know, Meb, Meb came through after that and then kind of reset it. And then with that being said, it's just so funny to, to that they even included this, first of all, was hysterical because it didn't really need to be said. But I think it's also a way of saying, like, we leaned like, thank you, NBC. Like, like we couldn't have done it without you. Thank you for like going to bat for us in this process because you have to wonder what kind of pressure or what ways the USATF tried to apply pressure and leverage on the IAAF. It's not as if they didn't already know this would be an issue when they ruled in this in this manner. You wonder how much NBC got involved as an intermediary in this process to try to sway it this direction. Yeah, it's hard for me to say because I don't know how much direct involvement that they had, but. I guarantee you, based on that little line in the press release, that USATF certainly leveraged that broadcast arrangement in their favor to make their case that it was important that the Olympic trials held the significance that it's always had and that it's easy for fans who are watching to understand that the three people who cross the finish line first in each race are, by virtue of that, on the Olympic team and can hold the flag up and celebrate and make for good TV. There you go. All right. Last one in a gold label marathon race, athletes who finish in the top five of the event are considered to have achieved the qualifying standard for the 2020 Olympic games. As such in Atlanta, the top three men and women place finishers over the 26.2 course will be nominated to the USATF Olympic roster. So, Here's the one question I have here is that does that also mean if one of the top three men or women decide not to run the marathon or have to pull out for another reason that the alternates four and five, even if they hadn't already received or earned the Olympic standard, will have the standard and would be an alternate if need be? That is correct. As I understand it, that would be the case. Uh, Fourth place would be the Olympic alternate. Uh, if they needed to, they'd go down to five. But if they if they needed to do that for whatever reason, their butts are covered. Right, and that's and, and certainly not quite the controversy as as other things. I think and uh, Jonathan Galt covered this in his little piece on uh, not little piece on this on this great piece on July eighth. Is that you start playing the game of going down the line, then all of a sudden you can bring potential litigation if you start skipping people, um, especially if it's not a firmly defined process in the beginning. So, all right. With that said, last question before you got to go. How do you think this changes 
the men's race itself. I'm bringing up the men's race because, like I said before, the women's race was going to be the same no matter what. So I think this race had the potential to be absolutely fascinating because you were going to have a certain cohort of runners who went into the race without the Olympic standard who felt like they needed to get it on that course. And they might say, hey, there's a 90% chance that I'm going to blow up and run you know, 219 today. But if there's a 10% chance that I can get in the top three and run 211.30, and that means at mile 11, I'm just going to make a break for it, like some some sort of like solo breakaway in the Tour de France, like this is what it's going to mean for me. And again, for them in a silo, that might not be a big deal, but it would put a lot of pressure on someone like Galen Rupp, Jared Warden, Warden Scott Fobble to make really tough decisions mid-race and really creating a very chaotic environment. Exactly. It changes the dynamics of the entire race. There would be a small percentage of runners in that race who knew that their only shot to get on the Olympic team would be to finish in the top three and break to 11.30. So they would go gangbusters from the gun to try and do that, and everyone else would be forced to react accordingly. Now that it's top five or top three, really, but you know, finishing the top three and you're on the team, regardless of whether you run 208 or 218, um, it's going to be a lot more strategic, but you're also kind of giving hope to guys who had lost it based on the new standards who would say, well, there's no way I'm going to run a 211.30. And really, that was the only way that they were going to get you know, on the team. So now you might have some guys who were a 214, 215 guys who are great racers who might be able to put themselves in a position where they're there at the end of the race and could contend for a spot on the team. So it's interesting from that angle as well. But to your point, the guys who did have the standard going in and you mentioned Galen Rupp, I think he'll get it in Chicago. Um, But he was one of those guys who wasn't going to have it. So it would have been really interesting for someone like him had they not made this change. But guys like Scott Fobble and Jared Ward, they would be very protective of you know where they were because they they knew they were holding kind of some ace cards and they could afford to you know take some risks that other people couldn't or they or they wouldn't have to take risks that other people will um, to put themselves in position. So it definitely changes the dynamics of the race, but I think it's going to make for an even more interesting race now because there are more guys in the field who feel like, hey, I might have a shot at this now that I don't have to run a certain time i just need to be in the top three that's it mario thank you for coming on this show and breaking this down with me thanks for having me it's super fun all right talk to you later this episode is sponsored by aftershocks the award-winning headphone brand best known for its ear-opening listening experience Powered by patented best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones sit outside your ear so you can hear your music and your surroundings at the same time. Aftershocks is a must-have headphone for runners, providing them with the ultimate level of safety and comfort without compromising quality. Not only runners, but bicyclists as well. I can't say that enough. It's so important for cyclists to hear what's going on around them, even more so than runners. And this is a huge thing for them as well. So learn more and save $50 on Aftershocks Endurance Bundles by visiting olympictrials.aftershocks.com. That's olympictrials.aftershocks.com. In addition, let me just say, six-hour battery life on these things. I love wireless headphones. 
But the pain in the butt about them often is their battery life. I don't like having to charge them every single night, and you don't have to do that with Aftershocks. So give them a shot, olympictrials.aftershocks.com, and use code R-T-T-O-T at checkout. That's RUN, I'm sorry, Road to the Olympic Trials acronym, R-T-T-O-T at checkout. Hey, Parker, thanks for coming on. Yeah, I'm excited to be back uh, a little sooner than we, than we expected, but that, that's a good thing. It is. It, it's a really interesting time. I was just talking to Mario Frioli that, um, you know, the, the emergency pod isn't really, you know, normally it's going to be done in the marathon world, <laughs> especially in July. <laughs> We're in marathon when basically there are no marathons. However... We have some exciting news that came down from the USATF yesterday, and I couldn't wait to touch base with you because I think that you are one of the runners, especially on the men's side, who you know were probably you know directly impacted by this announcement. So I've already talked with Mario at length about it, so we don't have to dive into exactly what was said. But with that being said, let's just, just dive into some of the history stuff. We talked in episode one about your, your marathoning history. We talked at length about that. So let's just dive into pre-March, you know, before the original uh, standard was set for the 2020 Olympics. What were just your thoughts, you know, if you had any, about what the Olympic standard was and what was generally needed to qualify for the 2020 Olympic Games? Yeah, I uh, definitely like if I had any, you know, I think. At the time, but before March, um, you know, in the past, it hasn't really been much of an of of an issue. You know, if you're trying to make the the team for the United States in the marathon, you got to be pretty good. You know that that's a fact. Um, and so I think most of the time, those standards were at a level that that it was the same. It was the same time to even get into the trials, if I remember. You know, I think it was two nineteen in the past, and that's what you had to do to get into the trials. So. I didn't have much thoughts about that. You know, I always thought about just being top three at the Olympic trials. Um, and I think pre-March, man, I was just trying to work on some of my, my own racing. And I was thinking about the Olympic trials kind of like, you know, I need to just keep getting better as a runner, as a competitor. And, you know, down the road when I run Chicago or New York or whatever I decided to do, just getting another marathon experience is going to help me make the team. But I ne- I didn't even think about the Olympic standards really um, before they came out. Yeah. So I was, when I was talking to Ben Rosario earlier today, he remembers in the winter, you know, kind of hearing on the periphery, how things were potentially going to change probably like most assuredly after 2020, but then every once in a while he'd hear a whisper about maybe it would be moved up a little bit. Did you ever hear anything like that? Yeah, I did. Um, I've got uh, some, I've got, so one of my friends is, uh, Luis Orta and he runs for Venezuela. And so, you know, those, those times are super important to him. And so I remember like kind of talking with him about it. And I, and I thought, um, I thought like a really good adjustment, like kind of just getting things on par. Cause you know, Hey, it's great to have a lot of people in the Olympic marathon and it's great to have all these countries represented and whatever, but it's also not a participation. Being an Olympian isn't a participation event. And so we all were kind of like, you know, the Olympic marathon 219 is just so far behind like any other mark so far behind. And so I think, 
when I kind of heard that and, and he was a little concerned about, you know, what will the mark be? I think everyone kind of thought like maybe like sub 215 um, was kind of would be like, you know, that's still obviously not on par with um, what it takes to be an Olympian in these other events. But it would just kind of be like moving the ball in the right direction. And also the reason it's slower than these other events is because they allow they can fill the field so much more than other events. Um, so I kind of thought 215 was going to be like around a number. And once again, I already had that mark and that wasn't, you know, that's not a mark that, um, if I'm not breaking 215, you know, I've got a lot of bigger problems than that, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to make the Olympics probably any anyways. So. <laughs> right. That's a good point for sure. And, <laughs> and you know, that, and that's wait, what you bring up with the Wii's is an interesting point that I'm sure we'll touch on later on in this series is, you know, individuals who will be running in the Olympics who currently live in the United States, but won't be running in the United States. I think that'll be an interesting storyline to touch on. So when in March, when the announcement came down that, you know, basically in two different ways that the, the original announcement of, all right, here's the new Olympic standard for the men and the women, for the men to 11.30, for the women to 29.30. And then that was quickly followed up by USATF's communication with Let's Run saying, we're sticking with the strict top three go. If you don't, if you don't get the Olympic standard, that's that's the breaks. What was your reaction to to those kind of like <laughs> dual announcements? Yeah, I uh, I'm pretty sure I I'm pretty sure I was going to bed and I was getting up at like 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. the next day for NYC half. I'm almost positive. And I remember <laughs> when that came so out. Ide- ideal race, ideal race <laughs> prep for you, obviously. Yeah. 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 No. And I even sent out some email to my agent, Ray Flynn, like that night. And I'm like, oh, uh, I'm like, you know, cause at least an email, it's like, you don't wake somebody up. But I was like, he's going to be like, wow, this guy is like emailing me at like midnight or something. So I was like, oh, you know what? But I don't care. And the big thing I was emailing him about was, um, I just remember my initial reaction was like, wow, that's intense. Um, that's a huge difference. That's like way, like that's way harder to get all this kind of stuff. But I think the biggest thing like that I was worried about was I thought, oh, no, like everyone's going to run Berlin or Chicago now. And I was really worried because for months, my plan was to run Berlin or Chicago and <clears throat> had been told like, yeah, no problem. Like, you know, we can get you a, a spot. We can get you a good situation, you know, parents fee, like whatever. But then I was super worried because, well, now everyone's going to want to do those races. And so that that was my biggest concern. Um and then, yeah, you know, uh, I didn't. I never had a problem with the time and the qualification process. I thought it was a little confusing, which wasn't. And then, like like you said, with USATF involvement and what they wanted to do, is it was really confusing. But as the time goes, I mean, once again, I I think it is a bit aggressive. But I also felt like, you know, it'll help people get to a new level. And um, I I think once again, like if you're getting top three in Atlanta on that day, like when the race goes off, like whatever, you're, you're well under probably a sub to 1130 person anyways. I guess it is a little frustrating that you would have to go prove that like in a different scenario before. But for me personally, I've been trying to break 211, you know, every time I've gone out and run a marathon. So it didn't, it didn't change a lot for just like my personal goals stuff. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. And when you had heard, basically when you'd had that reaction of basically like, okay, 
raising the expectation level isn't a negative. It will, you know, the, the results will correlate with the raised expectations. It's just going to be a matter of time. Do you feel like other athletes that were kind of in the similar boat as you? So basically the, the 212s, 213s, 214s, you know, type level right. marathoners. Do you feel like that that was kind of a, the general consensus or what were some of the, the conversations that you had had around that time? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I think a lot of people, well, this is what I would say is it's, it's really hard because the timing was so late that, um, so th- th- this is the thing why I don't think people felt that way. I was planning on breaking two eleven and hoping to do that no matter what, that's what, that was already my plan. But you know, other people that maybe they've been injured and, but they've shown they're really talented. So like, man, they just got to get right and get fit and they can have a great, performance on Olympic trials and make it, or you just already made plans. I felt like it was really unfair to people that, and they've, I think they felt very, um, that they had a real uphill battle against them when they had already made plans. Or like I said, they've really talented, but they've been injured. It's like, how am I supposed to go and get this standard, get healthy, go get the standard, and then also be ready by the trials on such late notice. But me selfishly, like I was always planning on running a marathon in the fall. And I was always planning on trying to break 211. So I was like, well, whatever. Now I've got, I can run 30 seconds slower anyways. <laughs> so it was kind of like, it, I'm not, I'm not the best example because it, it lined up perfectly with what my hopes were, but I felt like other people, I think in theory, they're like, yeah, that's cool. And that's exciting, but it was just unfair how late it was. I mean, so many people had already made their plans for the year. So I think it's good. I'm I'm really excited that it's changed back. Uh, I think it, uh, yeah, I mean, that's why we all love running. And it's like, if you have your special day on that day, like no one can say anything or do anything. Like you're, you're an Olympian and uh, you got it done. So. So you ended up choosing Chicago and obviously they, you know, the whole elite field shakeout had happened after that March announcement. Did the, did that announcement, about the qualifications affect you from a business perspective in Chicago? Uh, I think it affected everyone. You know, I, I can't, I don't want to say too much, but because um, it's not my place or whatever, but I think it's, I think it's crazy that it, it all happened this way. Um, because yeah, I mean, I think everyone wanted to run Chicago. They had more people than they ever dreamed of. And yeah, and a lot of people wanted to run there. And it's a really, it was a really good situation if you want to run the standard. So I think it affected a lot of people's business decisions. And I think, yeah, I think this worked out really well for, for the Chicago Marathon, uh, for sure. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. I've seen a lot of people who are calling it basically like, like the Olympic trials, like, like basically Olympic trials light because it's almost the entire field is going to be running Chicago, it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And now, yeah, I don't know. And it just changes everything because something else that just from a personal standpoint, I was really excited when the standard was two eleven thirty because, you know, I've been criticized for going out um, aggressively and trying to break two eleven. which I, I don't know why people like, sure, I haven't done it. And I, and I definitely have fallen quite short, but it's like, if you look at all the track times I've put up in my career, other things I've done, why would I, I, I don't feel like 211 is like really asking that much from checkpoints in other places of my career. Now I still have a long ways to go in the marathon, but other things I've done, like that's on board with what I've done. Um, so what I like about what I liked about it was I didn't feel like I was going to have as much criticism 
and a, a spotlight on me for someone trying to go out and run what I think is a, a solid, decent marathon on the world stage. Um, now, it, for some reason, it's pretty dang good in the US, but I think it's just solid or decent on the world stage. And I was excited that everyone was going to kind of like have to do that as well. And so now I have no idea what's going to happen in Chicago because, you know, like you said, in the past, you had these 213, 214, 212 guys, they would go and that's what they would run. They would run that pace, they'd run smart, and they'd run 212 something, 213. And that's great. But now, you know, what it was looking at was like, all those guys are going to come to Chicago and be like, I don't care if I'm only in 212 shape. I got to go with the 211 pace and I'm going to just go for it and see what happens. And so I thought that was really cool for American distance running. And I was excited to see that. I, I don't know what's going to happen now, uh, but I do think it's great that the, the trials has um, gone back to the original procedure, but I hope people still feel inspired to, you know, kind of go out there and, and hit that time and get after a little bit more. And it seems like by making this change, it also, and I talked about this at length with Mario, is that it could also you know, really impact the strategy of the men's race in Atlanta if you don't have as many people who feel this pressure to not only get in the top three, but also try to run 2.11.30 on what should be a pretty challenging course. Oh, yeah, it changes everything. I mean, I, I, have, no, I have no idea what to expect on a lot of stuff anymore. I mean, it changes, it changes it that way. But it also changes it because, I mean, it was very likely that there was only going to be, I don't know, five, six, seven men that probably realistically were going to be allowed to make the team, you know? So it it just narrowed it down. I mean, even, you know, the, a great example is somebody like um, Bernard Lagat, who just showed that he's he's really starting to learn the marathon and he's and he's making big games. But he probably said it himself. He, he only ran to 12 low and he got seventh in a, um, a gold label. So while he, I'm sure he was happy to make those gains, he was probably disappointed because it's like, well, you can't make the team probably unless the, unless your world ranking was high enough. So now it's like, well, no, now Bernard Lagat is like a serious person to consider because he just made a huge jump. Um, he's going to be really confident and he's going to have learned a lot. And now he's going to be a player at the Olympic trials along with everyone else. Cause it doesn't matter anymore what you've done, which is, which is kind of, I, I think it's good, but it is kind of crazy to imagine. Um, it's weird. Like to imagine someone like Galen Rupp, you know, who like, let's say he runs two Oh six at Chicago this year and he gets a little injured or something comes up and he's like struggling around the Olympic trials. It's kind of weird to be like, do you really not want a guy who's run 206 like on your Olympic team? So I don't know. I, I feel strangely about that. And I think that's why other countries like choose to look at kind of an athlete's whole like year or two, which I do think is an important piece. But, you know, the magic of the Olympic trials here in the U.S. is that if you top three on that day, that's how it goes. And that's what we've always known. So um, I'm I'm I embrace that and I'm excited. I'm excited for that day. You know, you bring up a great point. And I, th I think that, it, you know, it's, it's a really great thing to bring up, especially for someone like you, who's, you know, a competitor in the race to like basically be that honest about how like, hey, do you really not want Galen Rupp on the Olympic team, even if he just happens to have a bad day? And I think that you see this sort of thing with a lot of other sports as well, especially if someone's banged up. So when you look forward towards Chicago, 
you've mentioned several times, not only in this episode, but your previous episode as well, that you're a very self-driven person. You, know, you have you know high expectations for yourself. With that said, now that the external expectations, at least from a time perspective, pre-Olympic trials have now like been taken away, does it just feel different for you yet? Yeah, it feels different in like kind of like two ways, to be honest. Like in one way, it feels a little less intense and like awesome, which I, it's a high pressure situation at Chicago with that, with that going on and all those people shooting for that. And I'm, I'm a little, I feel like, yeah, I feel like it's a little less intense, which I'm um, not like disappointed in, but that's just kind of what I had been imagining for a long time. But what I'm, what I do really like about it is they're completely separate now. Like I can focus on Chicago. Now I've got 10 weeks. I can do my best there. I can learn what I need to learn. I can take risks. I can do whatever, you know, there's just a lot of things I can do now. And Chicago is just, it's, it's an end in itself. That's just is what it is. You know, um, it's going to be a great race. It's going to be really fun. It's a big city marathon and, and that's it. Where, and I do like that because I didn't like how all my training right now, staying healthy, like right now, every step I take in Chicago, like all those things like dictate this, this race that is far away and, and a totally different situation, like a hilly course in the middle of the day, scrappy, like just having to beat people. So there are such different situations. So I like that they're just both ends in themselves. And so I do like that Chicago is going to be awesome. And I'm going to focus on running as fast as I can um, on that day and improving the areas that I need to prove on. And, you know, that is a huge piece to Olympic trials, but now it's not like, it's not a necessary piece. Um, where before, if, if I did, if you didn't get it done there, it was kind of like, almost like, well, do I even show up to the trials? Like what, you know, like, is there incentive to even go? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was just weird. It was a weird thing before. So. And I think the other thing that this announcement does is that for both men and women, it, it makes it much more likely that people will go into the trials healthy because you'll have a group of people like, say, yourself, say you got to the point where like, hey, the goal is to get to 2130 or to be 2130 in Chicago, whether that's an ex internal goal or an external goal that's put upon you and say it's September 1st, right? Labor Day weekend. And all of a sudden you are come down with something where it's like, all right, it's not quite an injury, but I could probably benefit from taking a week off. But I got to yep. like, you know, this is peak training. Should I push it? And I feel like those sorts of decisions, which happen to runners of any stripe, you know, I think those sorts of decisions all of a sudden become much less complicated than they would have been before. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, we don't have enough time to dive into it, but I've, I'm dealing with that actually right now. and so it was really hard making decisions lately and whatever being like, if I get hurt, it basically is like, it's not even just Chicago. It's like, I, what am I, how am I even going to have a shot at the Olympic trials? And it was like, now, like you say, like one, like staying healthy or two, if I get hurt in my build up to Chicago, whatever, in theory, there's enough time then to go get healthy, go get fit and just try to pull something you know, out of thin air and, and throw it down at the trials where before everything was just so connected that it's just like, it's a marathon. And it's like people trying to do their best and, and, and lay it all out there. It's kind of like, 
it's unrealistic to like that you can have that many good buildups and that many good races. It's really, really challenging. So yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with that right now. And like, it was really stressful to be like, well, do I, do I back off and just, what do I do? Like, is it it, balancing? How much do I affect Chicago? How much do I affect the trials and what, how are these all connected? And so I'm really, I'm really grateful that they're just ends in themselves now. And, um, you can make the best decision you need to make now on just like day to day and, and do your best where before you were just having to think so much about the future that it was almost impossible to make the right decision on the day. Absolutely. All right. I can't wait to reconnect with you in August. I hope you get healthy and thank you so much for coming on for the emergency marathon pod. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm honored and flattered as always. Ben Rosario. Thank you just so much for joining me on the show. You are a man on the move, constant stuff coming out of uh, NAZ Elite, and you are on your way to Des Moines. So thank you for taking time out of your day during your layover, nonetheless, to jump on the show. Oh, yeah, no problem. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's a big topic, and, uh, you know, I'm excited to talk about it with you. Yeah, so with this show being the backdrop uh, of what I wanted to talk about, a lot of the things that I discussed with some of the athletes that have been on the show already was the conundrum of having basically a fall marathon, which was for them just as important as the Olympic trials marathon in February. Because the idea being, hey, I want to, if I qualify for the Olympic trials, I mean, qualify for the Olympics, I should say, I want to be able to go. So you have this setup where you needed, you know, for most people who hadn't been there already, you know, breaking 229.30 for the, for the women and 211.30 for the men so that they'd be able to qualify for the Olympics. Uh, so first things first, let's just touch on in March when the Tokyo 2020 qualification announcement came, came forward. How surprised were you at the alterations that were made to the Olympic uh, standard? I was surprised by the timing. I had kind of thought, I knew as far back as, um, I guess going into, God, what year would that have been? Some, some, sometime in 2018, I knew that they wanted to use this new system for the world championships this year in Doha. They wanted to use a ranking system. But some of the federations were really against it and really felt like it wasn't ready yet. And so they sort of did away with that. Uh, and said they were going to table it. And when they said that, I'm talking about they as an IAAF, I thought that they would probably end up tabling it until 2021, you know? Uh, So it surprised me a little bit in that sense, but it wasn't a complete shock in the sense that I knew there was going to be a new system at some point. So when you first heard that announcement, what was the reaction of your athletes who up to that point hadn't gone under either 211.30 or 229.30? You know, I, I don't mean to sound uh, like arrogant, but we, it, really didn't, it really didn't affect us all that much. I mean, we were already going into spring marathons with high goals anyway, so it didn't really mm-hmm. change anything that we were doing. Um, you know, Scott Fauble wanted to be top 10 at Boston anyway. Uh, Kellen and Alphine, I mean, for them, 229.30 wasn't that crazy of a time. And so obviously they wanted to run much faster than that anyway. Uh, and that, that's the three that were running in the spring. So for those three, it didn't really, didn't really change anything. Um, 
and then um you know we had a couple of athletes that were already planning on a fall marathon and you know like let's say scott smith and steph bruce that's who i'm thinking of um and they had already we pretty much already knew they were going to do chicago and it had nothing to do with any kind of standard we just wanted we felt like they needed to run a fall marathon so I don't know. It, did, it didn't really affect us that much, which is nice. I mean, I know it affected a lot of people. It just, for us, it wasn't really that big of a deal, which, you know, we're fortunate to be in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Because I know for quite a few people, it did set up the situation where, you know, figuring out exactly the best place to try to get the Olympic standard, um, it became, for a lot of people, just kind of like working backwards from February. Right. So you have have February 2020 and then you just start looking at the calendar to try to maximize your time to recover from a fall marathon while also trying to figure out the best fall marathon to do. Yeah, correct. No, I I imagine it was a big challenge and a a big uh, worry for a lot of folks. Um, I I don't really feel like running a fall marathon and then coming back February 29th is is uh, a bad thing. I mean, we have people. Again, all the way back then, we had we had the plan to have some people run fall marathons. Uh, we had um, uh, an athlete do a fall marathon last time around uh, for the 2016 trials, and it seemed to work just fine. So uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe me saying that uh, calms some people's fears. I, I don't think it's that crazy to run a fall marathon and then run a marathon on February 29th. It's kind of just like doing, you know, Chicago and Tokyo, which people do all the time, or, you know, Meb made the team twice running New York in the fall and, and then running uh, a marathon in the uh, winter. So yeah, I, I hope people aren't freaking out too much. I don't think it's all that crazy. Yeah, that's a great point. I was actually going to bring up Meb as well because he had that quick turnaround, which he, he talked at length about um, in his book and also in the new book uh, on the edge, which just details this as well is um, basically jumping, you know, from the fall marathon, like you mentioned, and then hit in that, that year, their Olympic trials was in January as opposed to late February. So it was an even quicker turnaround. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, look, Meb's very good, you know, but if you do it right and you recover properly, uh, especially if you're a little bit more on the veteran side and you've done a few marathons, it, it really, uh, you know, again, that's just, this is not really that crazy of a turnaround. You know, uh, Ryan Hall also made it in, in Houston, you know, having run Chicago in the fall. So um, I think... I think more of the uproar, and, and, you know, justifiably so, was that the announcement came so late, you know? Yes. So I think there was people that were, again, justifiably worried because maybe for a variety of reasons, maybe they didn't plan on doing any marathon, you know, for, for, for their own purposes. Like I'm saying, I, th- I think it's fine to do a fall, but I also understand why maybe some people wouldn't want to. Like, for example, Scott Fallball on our team, he's not going to run a fall, Um so if you hadn't planned on doing one, all of a sudden you felt like you had to, not necessarily because of the IAAF announcement, but because the USATF seemed as if their initial reaction was that they didn't want to uh, mess with, if you want to call it that, the, the ranking system. They only wanted to go with the automatic standard. And so I think that's what was really throwing people off and uh, getting people uh, you know, worried, upset, whatever you want to call it. Absolutely. And now, did you hear any whispers about a potential change in the uh, qualification system or hear about people kind of going through official or non-official channels to kind of file appeals 
that could lead to this kind of reversal of a, of a decision? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, from the very moment uh, that announcement came out, I got a call from a, you know, a person highly involved in USATF that was trying to gather information from various coaches, see what we thought, uh, see what athletes thought. And so, you know, USATF gets a lot of, catches a lot of flack and sometimes rightly so, uh, Pan Ams, haha, <laughs> et cetera. Uh, but, um, but in this case, I think they were really working hard behind the scenes from the get-go to uh, to figure this thing out and make it uh, the best situation possible for U.S. athletes. I think it took a while, but look, I mean, it's going to take a while, you know, that that uh, sort of thing, especially with the bureaucracy that is uh, present at IAAF. It takes, takes a while for something like that to go through. And so I do know that they were working on it, and Atlanta Track Club was a part of that from the very get-go. They, they wanted it to be, you know, top three go no matter what. You know, and so um, it was very much uh, a priority for them to work with USATF to push IAAF to, I'm not going to say reverse the decision, but just amend uh, the decision and, um, you know, create a situation like like has now been created where the U.S. trials, um, I don't know what you would call it, sort of gets an exemption. I mean, they've, they're calling it a gold label raise. I mean, call it, what you, call it whatever you want, but they've created a situation where the U.S., Japan, Athletes are countries with really deep fields and, and that have decided to have a selection race. Um, that selection race will be, you know, top three make it and that's it. Yeah, that's exactly right, which is, you know, similar to what we've had in the past. And I think for a lot of a lot for a lot of running fans who maybe haven't gotten too in the weeds with this, there was a this there was this um natural confusion about who was making what announcements and who had made what decisions, right? I had like a bunch of people reach out to me who, you know, follow this show or people who just, you know, were running fans in general, like, Hey, how come the US, USOC, you know, how come they had this such a, you know, we're limiting this in the first place. And it seemed like just the, the, a lot of the running public was just unclear about exactly what was happening and who were making decisions throughout this process. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I mean, you know, why would they know? Um, a lot of it goes on behind the scenes, you know, and I mean, there's there's a place for transparency. You know, you want to know what's going on, but at the same time, you know, we can't be privy to every every email that goes on between USATF and IAAF. So, I mean, I see both sides of it. Um, I think if USATF made a mistake, and who knows if some people inside the organization would admit this or not, the, the one big mistake they made was um, when the folks at Let's Run reached out for a comment and the communications director gave them a comment and an answer. And that comment uh, seemed to indicate that USATF was going to go with only the automatic standard and nothing else. And they weren't going to uh, uh, consider the ranking, uh, which could have really solved everything in a lot of ways, which you can get into if you want. But um, I think that's what really threw people off. And, and that was probably a mistake. Or I, I'm not, objectively, that was a mistake <laughs> because that decision had not been made. And so you really shouldn't make a comment like that um, that seems so definitive when, when the decision actually uh, was not final. Right. And then what you're hinting at here is also that like, you know, there are a lot of countries out there who have a lot of different processes for choosing their Olympic uh, representatives, right? So what are some of the ways that you think 
this could have been handled um, just on our end. That could have just alleviated some of the um, the chafing that it happened in March and maybe led to a more um, I just just, you know, making making this process easier for people and, you know, helping within the scheduling perspective of making sure that people had plenty of time to make their fall decisions without having to rely on a summer announcement. Well, one one thing is we shouldn't have freaked out so darn much about how hard it was to make uh, the Olympic standard. Uh, and I say we as in USATF and all the athletes and coaches and agents. And I mean, the fans, you can't really – the fans are fans, you know. They're, they're, um, it's not really their fault to – you know, the fans in all sports get excited about all sorts of weird things, you know, so whatever their reaction is, it is. But in terms of um, the powers that be and the people that are really affected by it, we should have taken a deep breath and really read and examined how the ranking system works. Because at the end of the day, truthfully, <laughs> I would bet a high amount of money that whoever the top three are in the U.S. trials on the men's and women's side would have been ranked high enough anyway to have an Olympic qualifying standard. Uh, if you look at that tokyorankings.com site right now, uh, I think it like to, cause you know, all you have to be in is the top 80 in the marathon rankings. And that's after they take out all the, you know, cause it, again, each country can only send three people. So three Kenyans go, three Ethiopians go, three Japanese go, three US go, etc. So when you're looking at the rankings, you take all those other people out. You take the Number four Kenyan all the way to the number 100 Kenyan, they're gone. They're out. So to be in the top 80 after all those people are taking out, taken out isn't really that crazy. I think it goes to like number 400. I think it's a guy who has a 214-something PR uh, would, would get in, you know, as it stands right now. Uh, and I don't think anybody ever really took the time to understand that or uh, examine that. And I think that was a mistake on a lot of people's parts. Right. And I think the other um, initial reaction was, all right, what is the standard? How many people already have it? As opposed to saying, okay, how many people will have it by the time the race gets run? Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that was probably an overreaction. Although, look, those people are right. 211.30 on the men's side is a tough standard. I think objectively it's tougher than 229.30. And uh, there's a reason for that at the, at the international level. Uh, not at the U.S. level, but the, at the international level, uh, for a variety of reasons, the uh, the men's marathon is deeper. You know, so that that's where those numbers are coming from. They're not coming from. They're not. That LF isn't trying to equate uh, physiologically a two eleven thirty and a two twenty nine thirty. They're they're trying to get their field size where they want it. You know, and so just the way it works out then is the men's standard is, is pretty darn tough. And uh, people were right to worry that the U.S. wouldn't have all that many people with that standard. I mean, there's only at that point in March when it came out, you know, there was only Boston, really, uh, and a couple of European marathons that U.S. athletes would even be competing in. And then there was the fall, which a lot of a lot of athletes, I think, were planning to skip, as you said, at the top. So, you know, there was there was reason to be concerned that we would not have athletes um with the automatic standard and again with that initial comment that came out of usatf it seemed like that was the only way you were going to be able to make the team and i think i just think that was the impetus for all the uh <laughs> uh chaos and um concern 
So let's talk about how this announcement will affect the race in February. I think this is just my own perspective, and I'd love to hear your reaction. I think ultimately it does it has almost little to no effect on what could happen in the women's race, considering that it seems like just about everybody in the top 10 will have the Olympic standards going into the race already, whether or not this, this announcement had been made. But on the men's side, it seems like this rate, this announcement could make it. Um, I, let me just hear what you're going to say. I'll, I'll, I'll wait for you to say something and then I'll, I'll express my own. Sure. Uh, well, it's great. You know, ultimately, this is what I wanted uh, because this is the most fair, you know, and because um, because honestly, let, let, let's say, I mean, there's two people now right on the men's side with that automatic standard. And let's say there was going to be two more get it in the fall. OK. And let's say two of the top three were came from those four. Right. But then third place was a guy who didn't have it. Right. And then one of those other guys that had it finished fourth. He wouldn't even want to go in that situation. You know, the athletes, they want it to be the top three. You know, who, why would – I mean, a lot of these guys know each other, you know. Um, if one of our guys had the standard and got fourth and Marty Heher, who used to be on our team, who we love, got third and Marty didn't get to go and we did because Marty didn't have the standard, nobody wants that, you know. So it just, it just makes it a better situation where, you know, let the best man win kind of thing, and that's that's good. The other thing that's good about the race itself is now, because I'm telling you, that course is hard. So now you won't have a situation where somebody who's really good, I mean, I don't have to name names, you could just plug in anybody you want. Somebody that's really good, but for whatever reason didn't have the standard, they would have had to not only get in the top three, but they would have had to run really fast on the day. And they would have had to go much faster than I think they would have wanted to on that course, on that day, in that situation. And so now you've got, now it's just a race. And it's just going to go and things are going to happen and there's going to be unpredictability, obviously, of course. Uh, but I just didn't want a situation where so many people got out over their head because they felt like they needed to run to 1130. So now we've just got a thing where, or a situation where the gun goes off and, you know, may the best man win. And that, that's what we wanted. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking was that on the men's side, because so many people were going to have to try to get the qualifying time at the trials that it would put a precarious strategic position or it would put Scott and Jared in a precarious strategic position where you'd have a bunch of people who were potentially going out early, going out really hard in an effort to run a great time on a fast course. And then Scott and Jared, who already have the qualifying time, trying to decide how fast they should go, who they should be trying to match, or if they should be running their own race and how best to judge both of those things. Correct. I think that's what people were concerned about, particularly way back in March and then way back when the USATF first came out with that, uh, you know, initial reaction. I, I, I do have to say, though, that, you know, they had come around on that. You know, they, they were going, they had something in place behind the scenes that was going to incorporate the ranking system. So I don't think that even if we hadn't gotten this gold label status, I don't think that it was going to be that you had to have the automatic standard. I, I just want to say that because I just want to be fair to USATF because, again, I'm happy to criticize them where appropriate. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not trying to kiss butt or anything, but, um, but they weren't going to stick to that. They, they had another plan in place that involved the ranking. So uh, j just, so that, just so that people are aware of that. 
That's a great that's a great rejoinder. I appreciate you throwing that in there because obviously they weren't weren't going to preempt the IAAF announcement with their own standard if they saw if they saw this potential uh, correct their ex- way. You're ex- exactly right. Th- this was their plan A was to get IAAF to um, to succumb or I don't know what you would say. I guess to to agree to this uh, scenario where they granted our trials, gold label status. That was plan A. They had a plan B in place, but there would be no reason to announce that. Uh, that would that would uh, destroy their leverage against uh, IAAF. So um, anyway, there was a lot of things going on behind the scenes. And of course, we're not always going to be privy to it. Uh, so maybe it's, maybe it's interesting to folks listening to know that that was the case. Absolutely. All right. I'll let you get going. You're literally in the airport on, on a layover. So thank you so much for doing this. With that being said, let me just say you are on your way to Des Moines for the U.S. champs, and you also, your team, just had a big announcement. So what was that? Yeah, correct. So about a half hour ago, right before you called me, uh, we announced two new additions to the roster. So Hoka NAZ Elite has added Rory Linkletter from BYU, six-time All-American, 1336 5K, 2812-10K guy, and and also a great team leader, uh, part of those BYU powerhouse squads the last couple of years in cross-country. Uh, we've added Rory, and then we've added Nick Hogger, a similar background, University of Portland, unbelievable team guy, also two podium finishes, NCAA cross country uh, on the team side, couple of All-American finishes himself, really strong guy uh, from a program that has uh, been good to us in the past. So yeah, we're super, super jazzed. Rory and Nick are joining us uh, immediately and, um, you know, big things ahead. Well, good luck. I can't wait to see how it goes. I can't wait to touch base with Kellen after her races, after she runs the 5 and 10. That's right. Hopefully she'll have good good things to talk about. So appreciate you having me on. Uh, hopefully we were able to shed some light on this whole thing. Hopefully everybody's able to quit uh, freaking out. I think it's all good now. And, uh, you know, we're going to have a heck of a trials. The Atlanta Track Club, I'm telling you, this will be my last thing is, they're just going to do such an awesome job. If you're if you're out there listening and you're even slightly considering going to watch, I would highly encourage you to do so. These guys are going to put on, I, I, I promise you, the best trials marathon we've ever had. I can't wait. I'll be down there. I know you'll be down there. And I advise anyone else to book their hotel rooms now because that will certainly be a wonderful event. Ben, safe travels, and I'll talk to you again. Thanks, Matt. See ya. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show because you never know. We might be putting out episodes like this and you don't want to be and you don't want to get left behind, I should say. Also, thank you so much to all of my guests today, Mario, Ben, and Parker, for sharing their opinions and expertise on a topic that was all the rage this week in the running community. Also, thank you so much to Aftershocks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. Thank you to my producer, David Margetti, from InPost Media. Also, thank you to MetaP for the music and his song, Evolution.